0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner as they discuss Time and the Soul, a Spiritual Biography.
1: Jacob Needleman, you are Professor of Philosophy at San Francisco State University. Uh, You've taught in quite a variety of places, uh, including... um, Uh, the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. You were educated in philosophy at Harvard and Yale and the University of Freiburg in Germany. You've been a research associate at Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research and uh, a fellow at Union Theological Seminary, uh, adjunct professor of medical ethics at uh, University of California Medical School and guest professor of religious studies at the Sorbonne. And I'm very pleased to uh, say that you are now a visiting scholar in philosophy at the new school at Commonwealth. <laughs> so uh, we are uh, glad to uh, at least not radically diminish the luster of your, uh, <laughs> of your uh, philosophical career. Uh, you've written uh, a remarkable uh, a collection of books over the years. and. Um, We have them on the table uh, near us, but they include um, the new religions, uh, the wisdom of love, money and the meaning of life, a sense of the cosmos, lost Christianity, the heart of philosophy, the way of the physician, time and the soul, the American soul, and why can't we be good? as well as the essential Marcus Aurelius and more. Uh, You were general editor of the Penguin Metaphysical Library. And um, uh, among your other books are the Tao Te Ching, uh, Consciousness and Tradition, Real Philosophy, and much more. Um, So... um, I kind of fell in love with your work in the course of reading for this conversation. We had lunch together about four months ago and began to get to know each other. Um, And then I expressed interest in reading your work. and, And on our way out, you and Gail and I, you went to your car and opened the trunk and pulled out a dozen of your books which I've been, <laughs> which I've, had, I've got right here with me and uh, I've had the, the pleasure of spending time with um, uh, but I thought I would start because your, your philosophical work, and this is part of what I really draws me to you, is that you are not an academician. Uh, you really have I mean you work in academics, but you really seek to connect the heart of philosophy to the heart questions of how we live our lives. Yes. Yeah. So one of the heart questions of how we live our lives uh, is the question, what is this thing called love, right. So you've thought about that, you've experienced it. You said when Gail walked through the door, it completely changed your life in terms of understanding the heart. So let me start with this question. What is this thing called love?
2: Do you have any easier questions? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Well, it is a hard question to do justice to um, and we are it's a difficult question like all real questions the only really serious questions are the unanswerable ones <laughs> and It's very difficult because we are very complex beings.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. and We have a side of ourselves, an aspect of ourselves, which needs to function and deal with the world, with all its greatness and all its problems and all its challenges. We're made to exhibit to live in this world around us, with a psyche adopted to that world um, and which that world uh, conditions us uh, to have, to a large extent, to a large extent, but not complete extent. So we have that side of ourselves um, which uh, we spend our life, really, mostly in that side of ourselves, Functioning, winning, losing, suffering, triumphing, with all its attractions, all its joys, all its complications, all its needs, physical, mental, emotional. But then there's another side, another element in ourselves. Which we are partly born with, also, and which begins to manifest sometimes very when we're very young, uh, and sometimes it takes a while before it calls attention to ourselves, to it calls us to it, and that is a kind of yearning for participation, for even merging with something much greater and higher than ourselves. Uh, This kind of love, in one sense of the word, is a yearning toward, I won't use the word God right now, but a yearning toward something deep, high, and intelligent in the universe. And as we later find out, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, We find out that that is in ourselves as well. So, in a way, it's a yearning, attraction toward something greater in ourselves and something greater in the universe, and they're both related to each other, very almost identical in certain ways. So, those two elements have their each have their own love, Uh, and the. The, the first one, which is the one that corresponds to our personality, our worldly self, has its own loves, its own attractions, it, its own ideals, and very much in certain aspects of it, it becomes uh, merged or related or connected with this second aspect, which is the spiritual aspect of a human being. And in that sense, there is a kind of a bridge between the two parts of ourselves, and uh, sometimes the love that is initiated by our ego actually transcends itself and connects us with this yearning for something deeper and higher, a deeper identity within ourselves. That other identity, that other self is has a yearning to not too much to deal with the world exactly, but to become more real, mm-hmm. more what we call by the word being more intensely there. Uh, Presence is a word that can be used for that. And we have this capacity to search for that and this need for that. At the same time, we have this other element of attractions in our conditioned personality. So each one has its own kind of love. And its own kind of attractions, its own kind of needs, its own kind of capacity for giving. So to begin to talk about this very great question, I would say that there is also an aspect of possibility of ourselves to find the balance between these two elements in us. The external functioning, the condition, personality, the ego, if you want to call it that, we not necessarily a negative sense. And this yearning toward being toward something higher, something deep within. And the work of finding the balance and the right proportion between these two elements of ourselves is what we're really deeply called for in this life. And the attraction toward that, which is the attraction toward a kind of truth, a kind of uh, understanding that can relate these two things, where, where these two elements in our nature, to make one greater whole, that kind of love, that kind of attraction, is another deeper, uniquely human form of love. And one of the results of which is that at a certain level of development, it can give. It can give uh, truth, it can give a meaningful life to others. It can participate in the giving that is really comes from above. So that, in a very short sentence, is, that, is there's no one answer to this question. But at every level, it's, it's, a, it's a balance between a yearning and a yearning to give. And I would say human beings were, are built to give, are built to serve. We cannot find, I think, our happiness, our fulfillment, unless we find a way to give to something greater than ourselves, it's something more more essential that needs us. So that, you know, I'm sorry, it's not very... That's about the beginning of a response, I would mm-hmm. say. I don't
1: know if that makes sense to you. Absolutely. In the Sufi tradition, they say the friend with a small f leads to the friend with a big f. Um, and so you said that sometimes the, the ego personality love can be transformed into that second kind of love. Um, And it seems to me that the spiritual traditions often divide between the ones that emphasize the difference between the two forms of love, and there are more than two forms, we'd both agree, but using your dichotomy, um, some traditions emphasize sort of the suppression of the human love in search of the divine, which is one way to do it. And others... uh, like the Sufi tradition, um, you see this in Hafiz and Rumi and so many others. Um, uh, you find it in Rilke with his love poems to God and so forth. Uh, they see human love, I, I think Socrates recognizes it, they see human love as, as a step uh, that leads to the divine. And um, I think in some of your writing, and I can't remember where I've seen different parts But you talk about how um, the forces that make us fall in love are distinct from the forces that sustain love over time. And that uh, for a sustained love over time to emulate this Sufi tradition of the friend leads to the friend with a capital L. um, It helps greatly if these if you become partners with with someone uh, in a shared search. Um, uh, and in another one of your books, when you're talking about philosophy, you talk about the central importance of finding a philosophical friend. So it seemed to me that both using the philosophical language of the philosophical friend and the spiritual language of the spiritual friend, that really from both traditions you're pointing at the same direction. It's a very, yeah, it's a wonderful point to make, you're making.
2: Um, and I think when you come to a question like these great questions, like mm-hmm. love... But the most we can do sometimes, and that's plenty, is to light a few candles uh, and have many insights, many observations, many interpretations, all sincerely meant, because there's no one answer. Or if there is one answer, it's composed of many, many aspects. And so uh, I would say that there are these great questions that. Uh, We're not going to answer them exactly, but we're going to deepen them. We're going to broaden them. And at the end of the day, we may have many candles. And so a deepened, a really deepened question is better than a superficial answer. (laughs) So I was thinking as you were speaking of this thing that Swami Vivekananda was. was, uh, I don't know if it was him or recorded to be, but when, he, maybe it was someone else, but when he was in the presence of Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna, who was one of the great masters of the East that we know of, and this young gifted pupil, every time, he, he would come in the presence of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna would bow to him. And it was, I think it was maybe Vivekananda, maybe not, but he would say, Master, he did say, why did you bow to me? I'm, you're the Master, why should you be bowing to me? And apparently, if if I remember it correctly, Ramakrishna was very sharp with him. He said, you are nothing. I am bowing to God in you. Mm-hmm. You are nothing. Mm-hmm. But I am bowing to the divinity within you. And I think that is f- the same thing at our level of a philosophical friend mm-hmm. and of sometimes a marriage or mm-hmm. two people who love each other. Mm-hmm. They also can love the divinity mm-hmm. within each other, mm-hmm. and to whatever, and then it becomes love. becomes In addition to everything functional, normal, sexual, emotional, children, uh, joy, happiness, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. there is this <coughs> possibility of supporting each other's search, mm-hmm. and that gives a whole other dimension to it. What does it mean to support another person's
1: path work inwardly. That's quite a great love. I love Rilke's line about love being two solitudes that acknowledge respect and support each other something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. That yeah. But really, uh, again in, in, in your work uh, you talk about how often people fall in love and then you know it gets difficult and things fall apart. And so what do they do? They may become cynical or they protect themselves from this because it falls apart. I mean, all the all the extraordinary pain and suffering that for so many people follow the experience of falling in love. And yet, the experience of falling in love, you talk about how, uh, you know, we... We play at love, and yet um, actually it's love that plays with us. That, that This in, incredible power you know, that comes to many of us. And, and the reason I often start with this is because, um, because everybody knows this experience. Not everybody, but most people have had the experience sometime in their lives of falling in love and and having a sense that everything that they thought before that, you know doesn't work anymore you know they just have and and so that force takes us to a place where we see the world in a different way and then of course what are the possibilities either you break up or you stay together but it becomes sort of you know much more kind of ordinary life. But but the inquiry that that force represents has been recognized by the great psychologists, I mean, Freud, Jung, Hillman, and others, as one of the truly great mysteries in life. And, and the great spiritual teachers have used that as one of the great access points to the divine. So... To me, it's often a good place to start these inquiries because it is so primary and so widely experienced and goes wrong so often. And yet, are we supposed to become cynical or give up on it just because of all of its vicissitudes? And I think your answer is no.
2: No,
1: no, no. But we do have to recognize...
2: That it is that falling in love happens. I don't do it exactly. Excuse me? It happens. It happens, right? I don't do it. Absolutely. It happens. It happens. But right. sustained love, I have to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that is work. That's work. Joyful work. Joyful. Nevertheless.
1: Sometimes joyful. Joy. <laughs> Not always. Always joyful. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear. <laughs> but it's often difficult. Yeah, okay. Always joyful, but often well, difficult. I can, I can go. Is that all right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: uh, it is to recognize that there's a difference between love that happens and love that is least infused with intention, mm-hmm. with with work, with mm-hmm. and it's therefore uh, has to do with uh, an inner an inner uh, action mm-hmm. that is often something has to be continually rediscovered mm-hmm. very often, mm-hmm. and it, uh, that means a, a kind of movement in oneself against certain automatic reactions mm-hmm. that are just mechanical, automatic kinds of things. And that is very human. Mm-hmm. To be having an intentional relationship to one's own emotional life mm-hmm. is a very great achievement. And we can come to that in moments. and, it, it, and Living with somebody, whether in marriage or whatever it is, mm-hmm. is like an invitation to the most human work you can find. Mm-hmm. Most important thing to have an, begin to have an intentional relationship to the emotional, physical aspect of my life. Then that's what the word for that is freedom. Mm. So you could say that uh, the work of love is the work toward freedom. Mm-hmm. inner freedom. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Inner freedom. Mm-hmm. I don't think too many people put it that way, but I, I think you
1: understand what i, I know. I know. So, in your philosophical extraordinary journey, let me paraphrase how I understand it from my Brief experience with your work. Uh, born Jewish near Philadelphia. Philadelphia is that right? Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. Um, your parents, uh, uh, you know, not especially religious. Uh, your grandparents religious, um, and um, and you found that religion as it was represented in the temple didn't speak to you. What spoke to you was nature, uh, the experience with your father or with a friend looking up at the sky. uh, uh, You ended up uh, at Harvard, um, uh, discovered uh, uh, you were supposed to become a physician, according to your parents, the only worthwhile thing to be, Uh, You got sidetracked into philosophy when your mother, when you were introduced as uh, Dr. Needleman, she said, he's not the kind of doctor that does any good for anybody. (laughs) 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 And, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you discovered uh, discovered, uh, Zen Buddhism at Harvard. And um, then later, I don't have the date right, um, you discovered uh, Gurdjieff. And when I'm kind of looking for sort of high points in your spiritual biography, this trajectory from atheist agnostic to Zen Buddhism to Gurdjieff seem at least three points. Do I have that yes, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, absolutely.
2: Yes, that's true. Okay. Because as an undergraduate majoring in philosophy, I was more of an existentialist, atheistic okay. person, which was very common to, is mm-hmm. widespread in European thought at that time, continental philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I resisted. I was allergic to anything of religion, Mm -hmm. really, from childhood, Mm -hmm. which meant very little to me, the the forms of it, Mm -hmm. uh, to my college years. And um, I felt there was something noble about the existentialist point of view that we're condemned to be free. There's no purpose out there particularly not the universe is not interested in us particularly, but in ourselves there is something that we are responsible for as human beings, and we have to cultivate that and care for each other and care find our meaning in that. That was sort of my stance, which is not, which was very much shared by some of the great philosophers of, of that time. And so I wasn't in uh, analytical, reductionistic, uh, or scientistic, uh, everything is just material. I was not materialist, but there was no religion at all in my horizon. Mm. And then came this professor who introduced us, me particularly, well, I did come in touch with some, a Hindu, some Hindu tradition, mm. uh, and that's an important little blip in the whole story because mm-hmm. at Harvard, philo- mostly the philosophers were didn't to take religion very seriously in the courses. There was just you just there was another world. But they ha- Harvard Unif- had these wonderful visitors, visiting professors who came from all over the world, and they had this one man who came from India. It, his name was last name was Das. And he was giving a course in Vedanta. And um, I found it sort of interesting to me. And I went to, I didn't know what Vedanta was very much, but it was Indian philosophy, as far well as I can see. And um, I went to sign up for it as an undergraduate. And I went to the room where the class was being held at the first day of class. And I was sitting in this nice big room at Emerson Hall in Harvard philosophy department. And the class, the time to start the class appeared and nobody was there. And uh, I was sitting in this classroom all alone. I think I must have gotten it wrong. I looked in the catalog, no, it was right, the right time. And And this little man walks in, this Indian professor and he sits down on the desk, takes out a book, and I had the book, I bought it because there was a text for the class, a completely incomprehensible book. (laughs) And we opened the page, and it turned out I'm going to be his only student. Because no philosopher India in those days It's bad enough to speak of, even say, the word metaphysics, you would have to wash your mouth out after. (laughs) And here was this Indian man, and this book starts out with a a sentence I couldn't quite figure out, the most difficult book I ever saw, but I was this man's pupil for the whole semester. (laughs) A tumultuous senior year, which I had to fly away to places where some young woman was causing me heartache and all kinds of (laughs) things. And there he was. We were reading this thing about Kant and Vedanta and all that. And I didn't understand that book at all, but I felt this man.
0: I felt something of another dimension. You're listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. This Indian
2: man, who's very respected, scientifically-type kind of person, but he had India in him. At the same time, this other teacher was very dramatic. He introduced him to be a book called Zen Buddhism. And it was the first, the writings of D.T. Suzuki, who was the great scholar who really was most responsible for bringing Zen Buddhism to the West, in addition to, in certain other respects, Alan Watts. But this was a great scholar who himself, apparently, was a very spiritually developed human being. But it was totally incomprehensible. But in a whole different way, it was, it was the way he said about it. Different than the Vedanta. Against, yeah, it was a different way of being incomprehensible to me. There two kinds of incomprehensibility. In one kind of incomprehensibility, you just you do that. Another kind, you go. <gasps> <laughs> Zen was the second kind. It was. Completely bizarre, completely against everything philosophically rational, but extraordinarily beautiful and great and attractive. Something was going on there. And then, so that was, I think, this, the, the whole movement that changed my. I then began to. Uh, I, I got attracted to the Gurjev teaching. And when
1: did, when did was, you get.
2: It uh, was this year, right, as I, right after I graduated. Excuse me? Right after I graduated college. Right after you graduated. It's a long story. I won't go into that. Okay. But it made me realize there was something about religion. Because Zen was, had the word Buddhism on it. Right. And Buddhism was a religion. Right. Vedanta too, in a sense, had the word uh, religion around it. Mm -hmm. So I began to have some respect, but I still was allergic, even more allergic to Judaism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Then, I, I'll skip ahead a little, I had to get a job. I was out of graduate school, uh, I, wrote, I wrote a doctoral, I wrote a thesis in graduate school about existentialism and psychiatry, but I, had, I was out of a job and I had to get a job teaching. The only job was that I finally could apply for was in San Francisco at San Francisco State College, as it was then called. But the only problem with that was I had tremendous credentials—Harvard, Yale, you know, all that stuff. But the only thing was, I, the person who, the reason the job was open, was because you had to. The person who took the job would have be obliged to teach courses in the history of Western religious thought. Hmm. No way. <laughs> but I needed a job. So I said, of course I can teach that class. And <laughs> all my other credentials were good, so I got the job, and thank God, that was a huge moment in my life to come to San Francisco because that opened the world to me in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. But to get to the point where the religion... I then began to bone up on things I never in my life would have read. Mm -hmm. Judaism, Jewish mysticism, as it was called, Christianity. That was, you know, (laughs) my mother, what did she say, my grandparents, (laughs) but I started forcing myself to read books about Christianity, books about Christianity, and lo and behold, it really was beautiful. It really was deep. It really was powerful, and so I began teaching this stuff as learning as I taught, and gained to respect the spiritual development of both Judaism and Christianity. At the same time, I started and more or less started the interest in the of teaching, which showed me even greater depths of all that, so Mm. that's about where I was, according to Mm. what you asked. Mm.
1: The Gurdjieff work, um, it's, you know, it's very interesting. I've had a lot of friends who were deeply involved in the Gurdjieff work, and I've read Gurdjieff, and I've read Uspensky, um, but it hasn't yet quite opened to me in the way the mystical traditions of Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and the Sufi tradition have opened. Those, those uh, four, in the course of long search, have, in some limited way at least, opened for me. Gurdjieff, I, I keep kind of tiptoeing around the edges um, but I haven't really gotten to the heart of Gurdjieff. Um, So how could you help me get to the heart of what Gurdjieff offered you?
2: Well, I could tell you a little bit about my uh, approach that I found when I was Quite young, mm-hmm. a year or so after I graduated college, and that made mm-hmm. some way respond mm-hmm. um, to. My I had a friend. i It'll be a bit of a story, if I may. I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, give me a few hours. I could turn it into a legend. But anyway. <laughs> But I this had a friend, and we were in New York in the hot summer after I graduated. We were in his little room, and he was talking about this young woman he was dating, whose mother was with this strange teacher in Paris named Gurdjieff. And uh, he started
1: describing it to me, and I, I listened, and he showed me a book.
2: He put it in my hand. I started reading the book. It was a book by Uspensky called "The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution," and I was sitting. I remember sitting in this little room in New York on the Upper West Side, uh, and um, reading this book. And I said, "No, you know, Irv. His name was Irv. This is really crap." And I threw it across the room, and he was no problem, we all have reactions, and it didn't cause him because he wasn't particularly interested, he was interested in the girl, but not what her mother was doing then I went down to visit my family who were living at that time in Florida and I came, I met I rediscovered I reconnected with a, a very dramatic older guy who was a violinist who lived the orchestra in one of the hotels there and when he met me we talked, he was very interested in mystical things, very brilliant very dramatic Hungarian violinist and he says read this book this is the boss That was a book about Gurdjieff and I said oh come on I know all that stuff he said you read this I, I took it home I started to read it, and I said, oh, come on, this is impossible. And Suddenly, I came across, started coming across remarkable psychological insights. And I said, whoa, this is, this is. And gradually, my, my reaction softened, because there were so many things that were such, to me, such insights that I'd never seen before, that I began to say, well, maybe there is, then I suddenly realized something about what I was reading, which I had never really experienced before. It was that this book and this man, Gurdjieff, the way I put it to myself was he speaks with authority. Mm-hmm. Now, that word, authority, I had never used or never felt that, anything like that in a book I had read authority, not that he had institutional authority, not anything official, not anything institutional at all, just it was something, that word was the only one I could think of, and it it charged me, entered me. What he was saying, I couldn't believe half of it, or even more than half, uh, but I was touched by a lot of it. But that question, the point of authority, made me realize there's something here I don't understand, but it's not because of it, but because of something lacking in me. And at that point, I made contact with this woman's mother, and started studying that practically. And the practical part of it is really needs time to to talk about. Because it is not just ideas. It's also a practice that starts that started, in my case, and probably with many Western people, where we are, just the work of a very deep work of, of, of cultivating in oneself an impartial witness, a warm, a warm objectivity toward oneself, guided by some of the psychological insights that he had a guided a witness that would really look and see and accompany oneself in the course of one's life. That was the beginning, and from then on we can go on to many other aspects of the teaching, because when I actually personally verified in my own experience with some degree of shock that I was actually what he says we are, which is very far from what we think we are, when I verified that, I realized this is something I want to pursue much more. Mm. And it went up and down, up and down.
1: But that was be this how I began mm. with the work. Now, there's much more to be said, but much more, and, and there's so many directions we could take this, but I, I want to take it in a direction that just fell in my lap recently, which, which I have a direct curiosity, just as I've and I've read a good deal of Gurdjieff and Uspensky, and it's not that I haven't been touched by them, and I, I understand some of it, but it never has broken through for me the way, you know, yeah, you know, those other traditions have, But but one thing that broke through for me recently, which I could never make sense of before was I began to study the Enneagram which began again I couldn't get it for I don't know 20 years but but uh, Gurdjieff uh, was responsible wasn't he for being one of the primary ways that the Enneagram work came to the West? Absolutely. yeah. So what is your experience with the Enneagram? Has it been a useful part of Gurdjieff's teaching for you or off on the side? It is but it's uh, it's
2: uh, Understood as a great symbol uh, of universal forces and the play of forces in 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 objective reality. Mm-hmm. It's um, and it's not something that we wish to fool ourselves about, uh, because it's very many other things in you know, the way I've understood it and. Many other things have to be understood before we can understand the enneagram. The enneagram. So you don't like the
1: popularization of it?
2: That takes well, part. it's just that's not what I understand to be the purpose right. of the enneagram. Right. Though I'm sure that some very clever, brilliant uh, typology is right. put out there that can be a psychological help to people. Right. I have no doubt about that. Right. But it, what he is talking about in the is our universal cosmic forces and energies uh-huh. within ourselves. Uh-huh. It has only tangential relationship to a psychological typology. Uh-huh. The, ty- the typology of the Enneagram is very
1: interesting, but that isn't the aim. Right. The principal aim. And in fact, Gurdjieff didn't teach the typology. That was developed by Oscar Ichazo and others after him. Yes. And whether that's true to the Enneagram or not, I I can't say. Yeah. Okay. Well, going back again to Gurdjieff and to your work and sort of circling back into some of your philosophical work, uh, sort of a... uh, From... So, from... Let me again try a paraphrase of what I understand. From Plato and Socrates, you you took the fundamental importance of dialogue uh, and the ever-deepening of the questions as the heart of philosophy. Then um, you speak uh, in a wonderful interview of how Descartes has actually been dissed a lot as the source of all our problems, but in fact... You were able to find in Descartes uh, the capacity to go inward to a part of yourself that you know that you found important, just to put it that way. Then Kant, you uh, you see that epistemology that Kantian thought as tremendously important. You you liken it to a cathedral, uh, but the main point about Kant is that we can only understand ourselves and the world from within the givens of our mind. So the question came to you, and again, I'm paraphrasing, and this may be an inadequate explanation. The question came to you, how can we bridge from the truth of Kant that everybody's had to deal with, that we only deal with the categories of our mind, to the other, to that which is beyond us? And your answer to that, as I understand it, is that the first plank in that bridge is deep listening to another person. And that that deep listening, where we let go of all our concepts and our ideas and our opinions, brings us into a place where the core inquiry, the core philosophic inquiry, the core spiritual effort to... to connect with the other is possible. Now again, that's a very rough paraphrase which I offer for correction or comment, but that's what I've understood from my reading thus far.
2: The the philosophy of Kant, Immanuel Kant, has been very, probably the greatest influence in philosophy of, of modern times. But Put it in as, you know, a simple way as possible. That the, he, he, his question was: there is certainty. There are things that we are certain about mm-hmm. that we can't help but be certain about. Mm-hmm. And because some of the other philosophers were being very skeptical about how much we can really know, mm-hmm. but, you know a philosopher named Hume. Who said we we don't really know that much? We think we think we know something, but actually it's just a sequence of experiences that we can't be sure are true or not. There's just we make probabilistic guesses and assumptions. And Kant said no, that can't be so. There's got to be things we are certain about that aren't just uh, truisms like A is A or two and two is four or two something. There are things that are by definition true are not what he's talking about. He's talking about certainty that is is about the universe, the world out there. We can be certain of certain things, such as every every cause has an effect. Every effect is caused, that there is a law of causality in the universe. Everything happens with a cause. It's not just popping into existence. And that kind of thing... you realize there can be certainty even though the content of what you know like whether all swans are white or whether this or that this happens in those particular plants or those particular animals those particular scientific facts those prob- there is probability about all that sort of thing and you need more and more evidence with your, and see it with your senses and think about it but in terms of the general principles like causality where things are there a substance and there there's accident, there's causality. He said, the reason that's certain, without that certainty, we would never know the world. And that certainty comes from the structure of our mind. The mind has these kind of categories like causality, substance, and things of like that. That by the time the data of the outer world come into our awareness, they've already been organized by these categories. So the certainty that we have is part, is because of the structure of mind, the mind itself. So we don't, therefore, and this is where it got to be such a shock to the world, therefore, because we structure the mind, structure the world through. The categories of mind, we can never know what the world is, apart from what we see, apart from the way it appears to us. We will never get to know what he called the thing in itself, the thing that's independent of our knowing. We wish to, we wish to know reality as it is in itself, but in fact, by the time we are aware of something, a stone, a thing, a person. That impression, we've already shaped it because our mind, that's the way the mind works. Well, this was a huge revolution that we can never, no matter what, was totally against Plato, against Aristotle, against a lot of philosophy, a lot of spiritual thought as well, that we can never know the world as it is in itself. We We are. And it was so terrifying to hear that from so many people. It really drove many people to despair that we'll, we can never know things as they are in themselves. That's the Kantian, in a very brief, you know, Kantian revolution. But what Kant wrote, several other things besides that book, that fantastic cathedral of a book called The Critique of Pure Reason, a very difficult but glorious structure. Mm-hmm. You need help with it. You can't, on yourself, it's very possible. But he wrote other books, called Practical Reason, and I won't go into the whole academic side of it, but in those books, he sneaks back something into, in a very beautiful way, that certain aspects of our ethical life and our way of relating to great nature and its sublime beauty, but particularly in our question of our will, our our ethical will, it's that part of ourselves can relate to things as they really are in in the world in themselves. Uh, we can we have an instrument of will of what is good, what is right. We have an instrument that can be a relate to beauty and this and the sublimeness of nature, where we can relate to things as they are in themselves. He just doesn't call it that way. The the, the despair that could come from thinking we can't know things in themselves is for Kant cured and and healed in these later books. But more than that, forgetting for a moment about Kant and the modern view, which is very much dominant in places, there is the whole idea of a capacity for intuition, that is hidden within us, that needs to be awakened. And as we ordinarily are, Kant holds true. But it's possible by an inner discipline, by an inner struggle, by a guided inner work, to awaken
1: a capacity to see things just as they are. And you say, did Kant acknowledge intuition? Are you saying that? Yeah, he did. Kant Mm -hmm. did acknowledge intuition. Later in a different way, different language. What Mm -hmm. I'm saying now is when you brought in listening, Mm -hmm.
2: which I never had thought of as being an answer to Kant, but I think you you hit something Mm -hmm. right on the head Mm there, that in work, the work, just in the practical work of actually listening Mm -hmm. to another person or to nature, or something, if one becomes very quiet and has a very sound, solid, meditative work of opening to what is going on inside the mind, and stepping back from it, stepping back even from the categories, this is something I never, the way you're hinting at, suggesting is really an interesting response to Kant. Mm-hmm. Because you can, if you can step back in yourself with a consciousness that is free from the categories of the mind, mm-hmm. you can actually see things as they really are in themselves because the human being is itself, the universe in miniature. So we have this capacity We don't see in nature with our ordinary mind, but when we step back from our own ordinary mind and another kind of consciousness appears, Mm -hmm. we can see things as they are, particularly other people, or anything at all. So what Kant didn't say, and maybe didn't realize, although who am I to criticize Mm -hmm. Kant, but what Kant didn't say or didn't talk about was another level of consciousness
1: which has another quality of knowledge possible. Um, John Goldthorpe, you're one of your uh, remarkable students, and, uh, is here today, and we've done several conversations, and one of our conversations was about Goethe's theory of knowledge. Uh, and it occurs to me that I'm wondering whether there is a lineage from Kant's uh, sense of intuition as the way out to the thing in itself, and Goethe's theory of knowledge, which was a kind of a primary perception. Goethe. Is, Goethe. Yeah. Goethe's theory of knowledge, which is kind of a primary perception, that enabled one enabled Goethe to understand one could say the thing in itself. I would think so. Uh, that, there, that
2: that. Yeah. Yeah, Goethe could be considered a kind of an answer to
1: Kant mm-hmm. in that sense, yeah. And And you said everybody struggled with Kant, so you could see existentialism in, as a sense, as a response to Kant, that, you know, right? Yeah, that's in many ways. Existentialism is a response
2: to over-systematizing human knowledge. human right. life. life. Yeah. Live, they say. And yeah. Kant's also said that yeah. in, a, in a way intellectually. <laughs> yeah. But,
1: existentialists live yeah. and the, the, the uh, philosophers think. One of the beautiful lines of thought in your work that I like so much is that you talk about how, I mean you are somebody who absolutely does not under, over. you do not underestimate the despair and chaos of our time. You know, I mean here we are you know, just um Facing ecological collapse, uh, you know, a rampant uh, global corporate structure that controls more and more, you know, media, politics. You look, wherever you look, things are really tough, right? And uh, so, so the questions of how we live in this reality, um, without succumbing to cynicism or despair... are are really fundamental philosophical religious spiritual questions. And and one of your lines of thought says, you know, yeah, we've got all this incredible progress in science and everybody thinks, you know, science is going to answer the moral ethical questions, but it can't answer the moral and ethical questions. Um, And that um, to do that, requires uh, this other dimension that you were talking about of of, of inquiry, the inner inquiry, uh, and that has been so hollowed out and neglected in our time. Uh, and so your trajectory of work, from your early work on the new religions uh, to your work on... Uh, you know, recovering the different traditions, including the tradition of the American founders, in addition to Judaism and Christianity and so forth, has been a, a kind of a pilgrimage through the destroyed landscape of our time, seeking a way of being that matches uh, the unbelievable personal and collective chaos in which we live. When you say when they uh, matches it, you mean that is, uh, is 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 that that is able to respond, respond at the to. level that is response able at the level of the challenge. That's very well put. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a real that's question. A, that's really you know. well put way of
2: stating the situation. Mm-hmm. What we're searching for in this. Dangerous world is a capacity that can match, mm-hmm. can, can is the equal of mm-hmm. the, the despair, the, the chaos, mm-hmm. the difficulty, and that's saying a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because ideas, brilliant as they are, are not enough. Because we can have very great ideas in our minds and feelings and so forth, but when it comes to action, they get forgotten or blown away or distorted or our, our ego is scratched and we so we have our leaders I'm not against anybody particular, but the leadership in our science and in our politics in our arts, in our everyday affairs is very fragile Uh, I remember once I was a guest at uh, at that thing they have at Davos Mm -hmm. every year with business and money and everything and I was at a table with someone from England who was the CEO of a billion, multi-billion dollar Mm -hmm. company big corporation. And he said at one, one point, he said, look, there were about seven or eight of us around the table. He says, I don't really know what
0: the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know. You're listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. And they were so honest. And to
2: think the world, the world is, is such a fix, and maybe it always has been, but it certainly is now, that nobody that we know is, is a match for it. Mm-hmm. Now what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That means not necessarily we need new philosophies or, or new ideologies mm-hmm. or new mass movements, but we need new people. Mm-hmm. And, and you could say Gurdjieff or whatever, but the answer to the, the, the crisis of the modern world is the, the appearance of real people, <laughs> people who have uh, developed inwardly enough to that their physical, f- emotional, and mental functions obey conscience. The Awakening of Conscience which is the main aim of the Gurdjieff teaching, by the way. What is the main aim? The Awakening of Conscience. Uh-huh. A real conscience, mm-hmm. not just superego in a psychological sense but a deeply hidden perception of value mm-hmm. and so forth. But people who can really uh, have a presence that will not be shaken by external Difficulties or psychological hang-ups or weak points. If we get enough people, real people like that, that could be, that could, that could keep the Earth from going to hell, as it seems to be under danger of now. That it's really dangerous for the whole planet. And maybe it's not that everything is weighed down. It may be that we're at a very critical tipping point. That that has not been like that for a long time, maybe ever, I don't know, a tipping point where just a little bit more of one thing would tumble it down, but a little more of another thing, probably maybe more conscious people could keep it from dis- being destroyed. So the hope, I'm speaking about the hope is in the appearance of genuine human beings, real, and then it begins the question, what is a real human being supposed to be? How are we supposed to be? I think this is where it mm-hmm. comes in. The Hope is in people, not in
1: new ideas, etc. Cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's really where it is. One of your wonderful books is Money and the Meaning of Life. Um, and um, you have a quote in there from somebody. I, or you could be saying it yourself, but I think I can't remember whether you're quoting it or saying it. Uh, but you say, um, if you want to understand the real measure of a person, look at how they deal with sex and money. And time. And time. Sex, money, and time. And I thought that's such an interesting observation. Um, Because, you know, people want to be spiritual in all these ways, and yet when it comes to sex, money, and time... That's that's where you see what... Yeah, you see what the real deal is. Yes, that was an observation by my own personal mentor, John Pentland. I was going to talk... Let's talk about John Sinclair Pentland, uh, Lord Pentland. um, uh, You uh, have a wonderful uh, chapter on him in your book, What is God? But you write, from the very beginning of my contact with the Gurdjieff work, I recognized as coming from Lord Pentland, something I had never seen or felt in any human being. Uh... Oh, and then, so what was it about Pentland that so powerfully affected you? By the way, he was, he worked with Gurdjieff. He uh, founded the American Gurdjieff. Uh, well, he was president of the Gurdjieff Foundation yeah, yeah. in New York. Yes. And then he founded the California Gurdjieff yes, Foundation. Yes. And, and was active until his death in 1958 or? No, yeah, 1984. 1984
2: um What was it about him? Yeah. he was uh, when I first met him, which was just after college and well, not meet him exactly, but I heard him speaking. Uh, I couldn't understand the word, but this was an under a lack of understanding. I mean this was a third kind of incomprehensible.
1: Uh, I said it was more like, huh? <laughs> uh, I could not. So there it. was the adve- there was the Vedanta incomprehensible, there was the Zen incomprehensible, and panty- the Gurdjieff incomprehensible. incomprehensible. No, this is the painting. Yeah. Panty- yeah, and the third is the charm, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the fourth was where it really got better. <laughs> was the fourth
2: Gale or was there another? No, no, fourth? No, no. The fourth was him, but oh, okay. in California. <laughs> uh, his. When I met him finally in person mm-hmm. I was suddenly and realized that I was in the presence of someone who had being. I didn't know what that word meant when they said that, but I knew that whatever it meant, that's what he had. Mm-hmm. This was not that he was smart, oh yes, he was brilliant, of course, not that it was uh, this or that quality, he just had... I hate to make up a word, but he had isness. Mm-hmm. He just was there, and I, it was an extraordinary intuitive feeling of being in the presence of someone higher. Mm-hmm. I can't find a better word to that. He had that authority that I had heard, thought of, heard and felt in the books he had as a human being. So, um, and he said many, many things that were very great, very profound. And that was one. about To know, take the measure of a person, see how they are with sex, money, and time. And he said, the hardest one of all is time. Mm. And I didn't know exactly what that meant until later on. But
1: What, what did it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's... <laughs> Let's take for granted for a moment that we know what he means by sex and money, but which we don't. <laughs> but time. let's start with time.
2: Let's start with the hardest thing. <laughs> uh, is there anybody here really, or how many really here, for example, you they don't have enough time in their life. Yeah. No. The, we don't even have to raise our hands. You, know right? the hands, <laughs> you, don't, you don't see all the hands up I, <laughs> No, this is, this is our, many one, one aspect is the time, our busyness our many obligations, our many complications. All the, the, the great inventions of the last 200 years that have been meant to save time, the result is we don't have any time left. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange paradox. Mm-hmm. The, this is part of our culture, is that everybody, almost everybody, including children, are too busy. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have meaningful time. We have, you know, by clock time, we have the same amount. But we don't have... The meaningful time in the sense that you only have meaning when you are there, present, and you exist at the moment you're there. And so what we lack is not that we don't, we lack and we lack hours and days and years. We lack presence. The present moment is being crunched into nothing for us, I think. And it's through the present moment that meaningful time will appear again. So that's one thing, one aspect of it. Uh, And then many other aspects of it that that you could go into. So that that thing he said was one guide for me eventually of the books I wanted to write to study the problems that we have existentially, humanly, With my aim in writing books was to try to find, as we said, we've heard at the beginning, a bridge between the great truths, uh, spiritual, metaphysical, cosmic truths taught at the heart of all the great religious traditions, including Gurja, and a bridge between those, those truths and the problems of our. Culture of our life, environment, the money, the, the violence, war, the, uh, the religious da- dangers we're having with, with religion, the, uh, the, the mentalization
1: of, of, our, of our life, uh, the commercialization of our life.
2: Um, so. I wanted to explain, I wanted to explore that. And one of the things that is most haunting, haunts us most, is money for many of us, or for maybe all of us, one way or the other. What is the the role of money in our life if we are searching for meaning, if we're searching for some, some real inner, personal, cosmic meaning to our life? What role does money have in it? I had never seen it talked about that way. There's plenty of books that tell us how to make money, how to keep it, how to hold it, how to deal with it in various different ways, but I hadn't seen any study of the the real honest place of money in a life that is searching for inner higher meaning. Mm -hmm. So that's what the book called Money and the Meaning of Life was, was about. And in that book, uh, Lord Pentland appears disguised,
1: but he gives some very interesting thoughts about it. Is he disguised as the businessman at the yes, end? Yeah. Yes. It's so interesting because these characters, like in Lost Christianity, while we were having lunch, there's this character in Lost Christianity who's kind of the key guy who's a, you meet him in an airport, he's a mysterious monk from Egypt or whatever. and. Uh, and you know you begin to talk, and then it goes away, and then years later you get this manuscript, this tattered manuscript, which, uh, which he has directed at his death be sent to you. And so you read it, and you have this long excerpt from it. And I looked at it, and of course the, what the monk had to say is beautiful, and I thought to myself... This monk is awfully convenient for (laughs) Jacob's work, you know. And because I'm very, you know, having studied political philosophy myself, as I did my doctorate in that at Yale, I knew very well, uh, as um, Leo Strauss so frequently pointed out, that um, the history of philosophy is filled with these... And guises that are adopted by people for whom it is dangerous to tell the truth directly. And so there are many, many ways that people do that. So it struck me that this, this monk was enormously convenient for your argument. And then when I was reading the book on money and the meaning of life, and I came to the businessman at the end, he had the same quality of being tremendously convenient, and lo and behold he is Lord Pentland in disguise. And you told me that in fact the monk was a, a similar uh, well, figure? What, what it was, was one of the, as I, I wrote my first book,
2: uh, I don't want to get into a tin pan alley, and then I wrote, but, <laughs> but, but I wrote the first book was about the new religious movements in 1970 that were appearing in the United States, and then the second book was about science and uh, mysticism and how there were some, I thought, dubious comparisons being made, but that what really science has to offer is very, very special, but it not to be so easily equated with mystical. Uh, and, but what was great and awesome in its own right. And then, and I was, I was realizing I was an author, and, and an author writes books, I can't be an author unless I'm writing a book or some books. So I figured, what, what's the next book after science and the new religious movements? And, and um, well, I knew that I had, in coming to teach at San Francisco, having feared and hated Christians who were against me when I was a kid, who used to follow my father. And, used to follow me, and, and I get, used to get into fights. Uh, and same time, having taught at San Francisco State about Christianity, having absolutely seen the beauty of it, the power of it. How, why didn't anybody ever tell me about this? I, I took courses at a college. Uh, I, I studied Christian teachers. Uh, et and I never could get past the, the reaction to Christianity, except when I read Kierkegaard, and that gave me a hint, a whiff. But why not write a book about and explore Christianity? Because it seemed, what I started to learn about it as I studied it on my own, and then particularly in the light of Gurdjieff, that the world had, was, be, it was being presented in the world, as something which is much, there's something much deeper in about this teaching that I did not know and that many people seemingly did not know, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it, so I decided to write a book about Christianity, which my Jewish grandparents would have fainted dead away if they knew that their grandson, nice Jewish boy, was writing a book about Christianity. But it had to be done. It was very passionately interesting to me. So I did it, I called it Lost Christianity. And I went, one of the people I went to was, a, I won't say who his name was, but he was very high official in a, one of the Christian traditions, a bishop of a certain kind, a real kind. And I said, I, I, heard, I understand, I guess, that in Christianity you have some place to go in certain periods of your, when you need to, or monasteries or a group of people where you can go deeply into this really deep mystical meaning of Christianity and develop it in yourself. And he said, where, where is it? <laughs> Honestly. I said, oh, wow, what a shock that was. So I I went into it. I started writing about it, Christianity. And when I started writing directly about it, I couldn't write it. I just wouldn't come. And maybe it was something of my upbringing, something of the prejudices I had. I could not speak about it. And suddenly there appeared this figure Father Silva, his name was, and suddenly all the thoughts and ideas that I wanted to try to open up
1: came pouring through this figure, mm. and that, so he was real in a very real way, in the sense, yeah. was, in the inner sense, he, he was real. Real. physically real, mm-hmm. but physically, no. Right. Yeah. How wonderful. Yeah. For me, uh, I mean. For me, I, I have found a variety of figures who represent that inner lost Christianity. The Gospel of Thomas, for me, represents that. The Gospel of Mary represents that. Absolutely. Um, the guy who, uh, the mystical Russian who wrote the book on the Tarot from a Christian point of view. I'm blocking on yes, this one. I don't know who. Yeah, he's a Soviet. He's a Russian. Um, that's another example. Um, Brother David to rest without question. Uh, Richard Rohr, to some degree. To some degree yeah. yes. uh, and Richard Rohr has a book on the Enneagram, I by the way, is, which yes. is a very interesting book. So i found those sources because, um, for me, as for you, um, I needed them. We were speaking earlier about the, the philosophical-spiritual school called the traditionalists of Rene Ganon, Fritjof Schoen, and people like that. And they have a vision which I know I find useful, I'm asking if you do, where essentially they see one light that goes down to different prophets and different traditions. And those prophets, those mystic prophets of the, of the traditions, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, and so on, um, have a, they have a shared inner light that f- from one source that is refracted in different ways according to the needs of their time. So they, they represent the esoteric heart of each religious tradition. And then necessarily an exoteric shell forms around that. And according to and Sean, and others, the question of whether the religion remains alive is whether the exotericists who have the power in the religion don't try to obliterate the esoteric mystics at the heart who who keep the fire alive. And so civilizations are formed around these religions, and the question of whether the civilization stays alive has to do with whether the exotericists with power honor the esotericists who break out beyond the uh, obligatory structures that the exotericists create. And I'm curious whether you have found that model from the traditionalists useful or obstructive in your own thinking. Well,
2: that's the reason what you're speaking of is contains the reason why sometimes these, what you might call esoteric teachers, teachings remain hidden mm-hmm. or disguised. Right. And particularly in the West. They're, right. There, in, in Western traditions, this kind of thing is often just behind the closed doors. It's right. secret, but not in a childish sense. No. The secrecy is, is a more like privacy. More like, to keep, don't go out there spreading things unless you're sure that the people you're speaking to will be appreciated, will be helped by it. Otherwise, it can cause more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Nothing is more dangerous than a great idea taken out of context. Yeah. Because that great idea has a lot of energy in it, human energy. And if it's not supported by a lot of other ideas in order to be understood well and deepened, it can lead to fanaticism, as, as we see in where it, like the idea of the superman. It became a horror in the world, whereas when it's, pre, it's discussed by someone with the sensibilities of a nature, it really is, it not, has nothing to do with physical power over other people. It has to do with inner power over oneself. So esotericism is, uh, is probably at the heart of a lot of the good things of civilization. Only you know, it doesn't call itself by that name, it doesn't advertise itself, It doesn't want, we don't want to see million man marches with consciousness on the flags or something mm-hmm. of that kind at, at, the end, at the end of it. We get parties, you would get divisions, you would get... Mm-hmm. No. But in order to let it develop in a healthy way, it stays quiet, and uh, but it, it does have an obligation. Mm-hmm. And this is really what you're saying is so poignant. This kind of teachings, when they're when they're authentic and not just invented but sort of made up or piecemeal, it has, it has an obligation. Where that will bring a more humane, more balanced, more a virtuous element into human life mm-hmm. and do it in a way that won't be so easily distorted. Mm-hmm. So some of the great art of the world like the cathedrals or some of the great music, some of the scriptures of the world uh, are written in a kind of not that they're trying to hide from people, but to written in a kind of way that people who have this kind of impulse toward yearning toward truth will be touched by it. It won't be, it won't be distorted so easily. So a lot of the things we have in the history of religious traditions were originally were written or produced in that way. And maybe now they've become too familiar, so there has to be sometimes a new. And new, new expressions in the culture that could, could touch that element. And some new ideas, for example, that could be fresh, but come from that source of the inner development. Because there are many, not just toxic chemicals in our culture, but there are toxic ideas
1: Absolutely. in our culture too. that have And perhaps more dangerous than the toxic perhaps. chemical. Yeah. I want to ask Kira if you could collect some questions if people have them. We'll continue to talk as they come up to the front of the room. Um, Yeah, I know a question I want to ask you. Where have you gone in your own thinking since the Gurdjieff work? In other words, does the Gurdjieff work continue to be your central inspiration, or have you found is there a kind of post gurdjieffian phrase? There's a wonderful line from Emerson who says um, something about no feeling is final, no revelation is final, that that there that the revelations keep coming in our lives. And so I'm curious whether there has been a revelation through all the work that you've done since you found the Gurdjieff work that you can put into words?
2: I would say the answer is no, but I have to qualify it a little. The the Gurdjieff teaching for me is endlessly, endlessly offering it understanding upon understanding. The deeper I go into it, the deeper it comes, the deeper it gets. Um, because consciousness has so many levels that we don't have much idea about the levels, and some cultures have maintained language that points to different levels of human consciousness. So insofar as consciousness is uh, no matter what you have attained, you realize it's always been a great mystery, an interesting mystery, a paradox that the people who you would conceive by instinct or in intuition or develop, who are most highly developed spiritually, you'll find are the ones who are most articulate In how far they are from what they should. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You know, you always think when it's the role of humility. Yeah, but when you're young and raw and not very mature, it sounds like maybe, oh, they're just saying that. But they must know that, you know. Why do they just? Why don't they just admit they know a lot? You know. (laughs) No, they, they have discovered. And it, the, the, one of the essences of the Gurdjieff work teaching is that the more you see your lack, the greater the gift can come. Mm-hmm. So That's such Christianity. It's almost the heart of all great spiritual traditions, is that when you really begin to feel your need, then the gift can come. And I remember once and I wrote about this, um, being in London and speaking to Russian Orthodox Archbishop Anthony Blue, who's a great person, who has written many wonderful books on YouTube and all that. But uh, I uh, told him of my experience I had when I was in Athens in a Greek, uh, Russian, in an Orthodox cathedral, rather. And I saw the head of Christ up on the ceiling, which I have as the creator of the universe. And I had the feeling that life, very strong feeling that my life was a gift. It was amazing that I felt that. And I asked Bloom, what is, how can I rest-? I felt so inadequate. How do I respond to a gift like that? And he, he, he said wonderful thing. He said, well, what is the proper response to a gift? Mm-hmm. Uh, I began to suspect it but I knew now I knew what he would say when I said well uh, what is it he said to accept it mm-hmm. and I, that is the whole meaning of our spiritual work is to accept the gift and the gift was uh, the consciousness, understanding, love and so forth isn't that an interesting it mm-hmm. puts it all in such a good perspective so we're, we are working at on ourselves to allow the gift that's there waiting to come And There are many parables and things about this. It's like the story of the, in the Sufi story of the man knocking at the door and the other side is, is God or whatever takes the place of God. And the other side says, who's there? And the guy knocking says, I am. And he doesn't answer. Nothing happens. He doesn't open the door. He knocks again. And the, the God, or whatever the God is, says, who's there? And they, I am. Nothing happens. Finally, he knocks a third time. And the voice says, who's there? And he answers,
1: you are. <laughs> <laughs> the door opens. <laughs> That's lovely. What have we got here? We have many things. Um... Uh, but here's, um, here's a wonderful one, because you talk of it at some length and I'm very interested in. The question is, what is your experience of soul? And, um, and um, so that's an experiential question. For me, there's the conceptual piece that goes with it. That in, um, when... Uh, James Hillman started working on his archetypal psychology and rediscovered the Renaissance thinking. And the model of the human being is the body, soul, and spirit. And soul being the intermediate dimension of uh, our existence where where we actually feel all our multiplicity. Um, And it occurs to me that there are many definitions of soul... So the question is, what is your experience of soul? My question with it would be, how do you understand philosophically and spiritually, how do you, what do you you mean by the word soul? Well, there's
2: a technical, not technical, but there's a a traditional spiritual understand mystical whatever understanding of that word. Mm-hmm. For many of us it means my deepest feeling, mm-hmm. my 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 most sensitive uh, truest part of myself mm-hmm. that's relative because one can go much deeper usually but one that doesn't always necessarily in touch with, but the parts of the very deep, sensitive self can be touched and when people speak of it, ordinarily language, ordinary language, that was my soul. I know it's fine, but in a more traditional ancient, very ancient sense of the word, it's the highest part of a human being and it, it's the you know, one thing that the spirit is, which represents really the divine element, can enter the soul, and the soul then lives and sends out its instruments into the world. So, in the one sense, in the more traditional sense, and maybe in the more, more Gurdjieffian sense, the soul is the true I am, the true self, higher self. And it gives an intermediate between something which is immeasurably great and our everyday functions in our life and so forth. So, I can't say I have experienced the soul exactly, but something in that direction, yes. This sense of uh, of Another, deeper, personal being who can say, I
1: am, and it means something, means something. You know, it's so interesting that you use that definition. It's, it's similar to Parker Palmer's sense of soul, and uh, I, I think... But the one that I've been working with, uh, when John Goldthorpe and I talk about Hillman, uh, Hillman distinguishes soul and spirit. And so spirit is the higher dimension, and soul is the intermediate one. And he talks about how soul gets lonely when spirit goes off into transcendent space. So, um, so it's, we can't do this now, but... I think there's a lot of confusion around the different definitions that we could spend good time on if we had the chance to do that. Uh, Can you, do animals love? Animals love? Yeah, do animals love. I hope so. Yeah. I'm sure that (laughs) Charles would tell you that animals love, or Kira, or any of our, all of us. Our cats, I I can only hope they have a good opinion of me. You talked about uh, Kant's uh, uh, view that everything has a cause. And the question is, synchronicity, Jung's a-causal principle. A good question. What is it called? A spontaneous co-arising or something like that in Buddhism? That came to mind too, the different... The different views of a causal, you know. Well, that's a good, nice phrase. Yeah. I'm sure it's, it's a great phrase. Yeah. <laughs> well, so is Kant. <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> why do we prioritize Kant over uh, yeah, the Buddhist? Well, I agree. Yeah. He has a lot of arguments, though. Yeah,
2: right. I mean, if he, 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 would, he would shred us, you know. Right. He would, he would, uh, <laughs> He has lots of thoughts that go with it. He explains a lot more, but simultaneous co-arising, uh, I think uh, I suddenly realize, maybe, I'm not saying that, but I suddenly realize it's strange, and I'm not saying it's true of you or any of us, but still, when you get a good phrase, it's, it makes you feel like you understood something. <laughs> And how much of our so-called understanding is just good phrases? Right. (laughs) It's really serious. So the point is, generally, there are things that we can't explain, that do happen. There are realities, there are things that happen, that so far science, Cannot and may probably never could explain. They do happen. I do. I'm sure of that, mm-hmm. and I'm sure the synchronicity does happen mm-hmm. sometimes. And maybe the truth, somebody's inner world attracts that in some way. I'm sure of it. So I'm not putting it down. I just, I just don't want to. Uh, what I'm saying is, such things exist. Whether this or that one is mere chance or not, or just or is actually something more than chance, I'm not sure I could always tell. But when it happens to my life as it does, I believe it's something
1: that the universe is favoring me. Right. Pay attention. Yeah. Can you expand on how one can live in the current world without succumbing to despair? I'll tell you... One
2: of the things that I say often because it was so strong. I was teaching one of my classes, I wanted to teach a course in uh, teaching the philosophy of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a great philosopher, American philosopher, that everybody should read. And I was afraid to assign these books to my students because I was a little nervous because they weren't reading that kind of material, you know, whether they would get it or not. But I taught the class, and of course, all depends on how it's taught. I mean, it's not just the book. It has to be taught in a way that you were referring to. Actually, the work of exchanging with students and listening to each other and being, giving a kind of uh, impartial love toward them. And all of that goes with real teaching, which is real listening. Anyway, at the end of the course, I said, I saw that all of you really liked this material, this Emerson, why? What did you like about it? And people said different things, because Emerson is a kind of slightly, seemingly optimistic about the future and things, but that wasn't what... Then one student said, he, brought, he gave me hope, and that's what you're asking about, and there was hope, not in some future that might be pleasant or not. It was because that a part of himself was awakened that he didn't know he had this higher part, this higher yearning, which is also an indication that something higher exists that could go beyond despair, could could actually cure the despair, to bring a real <coughs> possibility of really be the cure of the despair that is so realistic when you look at the world in a certain way that it brought him hope. So it's the, my my beginning of a response to this question would be to come in touch, to try to work with philosophical friends, to come in touch with this part of yourself which our culture has not acknowledged at all. Then you'll know that we're, there can exist the road that leads to real hope.
1: That's all I could say on that yeah. here's one that I can't read very easily um, but it says, can you wrestle more for us with that stunning Kierkegaardian expression the self is a relation it relates itself with itself. which relates itself to its own self or that in or the is it that in the relationship yes, right. yeah <laughs> maybe you maybe you know the right I know it by heart. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, uh, I can recommend a good book okay. it's called, What is God? Yeah. by Jacob Needleman. <laughs> <laughs> I have, oh, there are several four chapters about those things. Okay.
1: Jacob Needleman, thank you for being with us oh. at the New School. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.